welcome to JudgeCast. My name is CJ Schrader, level two from Georgia. Boo! Come on. My wife just booed me. <laughs> She's not loud in here when I'm recording. Alright, we also have with me, as always, my co-host, Jess Dunks. Hello, I'm Jess Dunks. Brian Prilliman was not able to join us this episode, but we one-upped him with another Florida resident, Benjamin McDowell. I'm like Prilliman, except when I talk to you, my story's not boring and you're going to stay awake. Oh, that's a marked improvement. <laughs> yes, yes it is. Tell us more about you, Ben. Who are you? Where are I you am, from? Uh, I am Ben McDowell. I'm a level three judge from Tampa, Florida. Uh, in my off time, I like to hooligan with all of the other Florida judges. Yes. And uh, this weekend, I'm flying to Vegas, so I'll be out in that area. So that should be uh, that should be a great time. That's cool. That's cool. Well, uh, I, w- I will not be in Vegas this weekend. I know. I, I was uh, disappointed, but yeah. Well, I'm gonna be. Uh, I'm gonna be going to the SCG Invitational in LA, but uh, you're probably not going to that. It's a bit far anyway. I thought about it. I thought about head judging Vegas and then crashing in LA because I'm queued for the Invitational. Oh, okay. Run it. I have a final. I have one final exam that I have to give that week, and so I couldn't just stay the entire week out there, and it wasn't worth the flight there and back. And that's fair. That's fair. Ben is a is a professor. You can't say teacher, or he'll correct you. And you can even go read ratings on him at rate my professor or whatever. That's a pretty fun thing to do. Oh, you can. They are so angry. People don't I like him know. because you know he makes them work for their grade. Right. I didn't realize calculus would be hard. Who yeah. does homework anymore? I hate this person. I'm like, <laughs> thank you. You got me. I... That, that kind of reminds me, and I'm not trying to compare judging with your work, but that kind of reminds me of sometimes we get negative reviews on like Yelp or whatever at our store from, from somebody that gets DQ'd for something. And uh, they're, they're always like, oh, this was so unfair. And this, this guy shouldn't have done it. He was just out to get me. <laughs> like, yeah, quite clearly. Yeah, that's... Uh, judges don't quite have the personal vendettas that everyone thinks we may have. No, no, we definitely that's don't. True. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a good point. So let's let's hop into our news, though, uh, some newsy items, which is only one thing, is that starting in January, I'm not sure the exact date, Modern will be a legal format for Friday Night Magic. Uh, yeah, so one thing I want to point out about that, and first of all, I'm excited about that on the one hand because I love Modern. Yeah. I'm disappointed because contrary to what some players think when they talk to me about it, that doesn't mean we're going to be able to run an extra FNM that's modern. It means that we have, we have, you know, if your store is allowed to run one FNM, then they are still only allowed to run one. They're just allowed to run it as modern instead of standard or draft or whatever. The same is true if you run two FNMs. You're not allowed to run a, an additional one that's modern, which is what I really, really wanted to do. Yeah, so for those that don't know, when a store is uh, creating their FNM, they choose what the format's going to be. It's not like right. um, PTQs where there's like a, a modern season or whatever. Stores choose them as they create them. And, and some of the formats they can choose, or all of the formats they can choose, are a standard, sealed deck, booster draft, block construct, extended for some reason. And then they can also choose two-headed giant, which is uh, either standard or sealed in that format. I've never seen anyone do two-headed giant, but I'm told it happens. Supposedly it happens quite a bit, but... I've never actually seen it either. Yeah, I don't know about that. I've never seen it. I know this This is actually a really fantastic time to do Modern because the next PTQ season happens to be Modern. Okay, yeah. And it starts in January. So, I mean, it seems really, really well-timed to maybe get some bleed over for people who are practicing. But I think at the same time, it's going to send sort of a mixed message with FNM being regular rel. Sure. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, hopefully, hopefully we'll get a new jar at some point in the near future that makes Regrel a little more consistent with Top Rail. Not not competitive, but just more consistent with some of the things that are very very different between them. 
Yeah, there's supposed to be a new one coming, but I think that's uh, but, supposed to be coming for a year now. I, I don't know what's up with that. Yeah, I don't know. We'll have, uh, James McKay is, is pretty busy. He yeah. runs a gigantic store in Australia, and then he just, uh, you know, should be congratulated because he just had a new child. Oh, well, congratulations to him. I did not know yeah. that. Yeah, lot, lots of neat stuff like that. So he, um, you know, of course, he's level four. He just stepped down as RC. It's Nathan Brewer now. So, you know, there's a lot of shifting and changing stuff in Australia. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, that's exciting for him, but doesn't get us a judging at regular document. Uh, all right, all right. Did, I have to you, mention did it. You guys, did, were you guys ever there uh, when he explained what the first name of the judging at regular RL document was going to be? No. He said it was the the fixing all common errors players are likely making. The acronym there is Facepalm. Face. Baseball? Face palm. Face palm. Oh. Like what you All right, I get it. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but I. <laughs> I was going to say, I should mention that uh, on Judge Katzenworth's previous episode, they had James McKay on, and they did talk about judging our regular. So people interested in that sh- could potentially go check that out, maybe, possibly. But let's hop in to our main topic. On this episode, uh, it's going to be a little bit of a, I don't know if lighter one is the right word, but we wanted to go over some tournament policy in the Infraction Procedure Guide. Uh, we didn't want to go over the entire Infraction Procedure Guide, but rather go over the parts that don't come up quite as often. Uh, some of them do, some of them don't. And we thought we'd dive right into the tournament errors section of the infraction procedure guide. So that's that's a that's 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 kind of a hefty section though, really. Yeah, there's actually a lot there and there's some that happen a ton and there's some that don't. So the sections of the IPG by the way, it's uh, gameplay errors, tournament errors, unsporting conduct and cheating. So we're just going to cover tournament errors this time, but gameplay errors are exactly what they sound like they are. All of these are exactly what they sound like they are. Um, tournament errors, though, are the kinds of errors you make that are against the rules of a tournament, but not actually against the actual rules of the game. So uh, tardiness is the very first one. You know, if you're not in your seat when the clock starts, you'll get a tardiness penalty. And, and like CJ mentioned, the reason these are different is that there's no rule in the Magic Comprehensive Rules that says you have to be in your seat on time. That's right. in the Magic Tournament Rules. So the tournament errors are violations of tournament policy and instead of Apple's policy. And that's the only reason they're separate. Yeah. Uh, but there is one important thing uh, about these being separate, and that's that the upgrade path for these is different from uh, the upgrade path for game players. Yeah. So that's that's an important thing to note. And the, the, the upgrade path, if I'm not mistaken, is that it, on the second morning for a tournament error, uh, you uh, the, it is upgraded to a game loss. Right. Uh, as opposed to gameplay errors where the, the third warning is upgraded to a game loss. Yep. So let's talk about tardiness a little bit more. Um, the, uh, the most obvious one, the one that's given out probably the most in any tournament ever, is the player isn't showing up in their seat or shows up late after the round has started. Mm-hmm. That's a straight-up game loss. Everyone knows how that one works. Now, if they don't show up at all, we give them another game loss, which is effectively a match loss. Now, I've seen at uh, many tournaments, like I always just basically ask the scorekeeper or tournament organizer what they want me to do if the player doesn't show up. But generally, I've seen that policy has been to drop them from the tournament. So I don't even fill out the whole, you know, match loss thing. I'm just like, this guy didn't show up, double game loss, drop him. And then if he shows up, we can add him back in. Is that what you guys have normally seen? Well, that is correct. There's also actually the, the specific policy lined out in the IPG is to drop them from the event. Oh, so it is. Right. That's a relatively recent addition, I believe. I mean, I think we've always been doing it, but I don't know if it was specifically spelled out in there. Yeah, it says, it says they, uh, 
it now clarifies, I should say, that they receive, right. if you're out there in 10 minutes, you receive a match loss and will be dropped from the tournament uh, unless they report to the head judge or scorekeeper before the end of the round. Right. So so that's that's the obvious one, is not being in your seat in time when the clock starts. Can you guys tell me some other situations that give you tardiness? But yeah, so another thing would be uh, handing in your deck list after the time is is, is started. So that that this comes up a lot uh, in sealed uh, events where you have deck lists, mm-hmm. uh, where players are just not fast enough at filling out their deck list. And sometimes it happens in constructed events where players show up, uh, you know, two minutes before the event and they go, "Oh wow, I need a deck list," and they take forever filling it out. Right. Um, so the, that's probably this, you know, one of the more common reasons people are late in round one is a, the, the deck list issue. Yeah, yeah, and I and I've seen that I've seen that happen quite a few times myself. It's always just one person they just can't get it in. Uh, there, there are a couple more examples in the IPG. Yeah, that you know a player loses his or her deck and has to find replacement cards. I've seen I've never seen a player lose their entire deck and be late for that reason. Right. Although I can see it happening. I have seen players lose a card and have to try and find it. Uh, and the other thing is that a player sits at an incorrect table and plays the wrong opponent, and this happens way more often than you'd think. Yeah, it happens a ton. I've seen it happen so much. But uh, to jump back to that player losing their card, now, I, I've i generally had the policy of, you know, I'm going to give you guys a few minutes to find the card before I, I start giving out the tardiness. Well, I so, think this kind of... I'm sorry, go ahead, Ben. Please give them. What? How long do you feel is fair to give them? Oh, uh, like... Maybe five minutes or so. So, well, I'm, I'm a lot more strict on that one. And yeah. it really comes down to what the head judge's policy is here. If the head judge is going with a zero and ten policy on, uh, on tardiness, then, uh, which is, which is the default, then, uh, I, I don't give them any extra time because they're not ready to, when they sit down at the table, they're not ready. Uh, and, but if they're going with the, if the head judge is allowing the three minutes for pregame procedure, mm-hmm. um, then, then I'll, I will allow them that three minutes time to find their card. And one of the reasons that I'll go ahead and do this, uh, if they're not ready and it's, and we're doing zero and ten is because, you know, the head judge can, can overrule me on that, but he's probably not going to. But the, the head judge can overrule me on that if necessary if they, if they appeal. And in extraordinary situations, you know, like that guy stole my deck or something. Right. Uh, we, we may, I want to bring that to the head judge. Okay, well maybe I'm in the wrong there. Uh, I'm kind of a, I'm a big fan of giving the three minutes, even even if I've decided zero and ten for tardiness. The reason being that really part of their pregame procedure is presenting a legal deck. Yeah. yeah. And if we're going to give them three minutes to accomplish that, then we should give them three minutes to find that card he's missing. That's a, that's a fair that's a very fair statement. Yeah, that's that's good. I think I mean, really early into my judging career, I was very we're going zero ten. We're going to get these rounds to turn around. But the problem with that is like you start to drift towards zero ten, quote unquote, with a heart. Where if you see somebody rushing their seat, then you you know you just give them that extra second or so. Well, if it's three ten for tardiness, then you don't really have to wait. Like if you see somebody rushing toward their seat, you can just go ahead and start the round and know that he's going to sit down. Take his, you know, twenty seconds to compose himself and then get started with our match. Mm-hmm. And it also, it also lends a stronger argument to the judge when the player sits down three minutes and ten seconds into the round. Right. And, and, and you're like, oh, you're getting a game loss, and he's like, but I was only ten seconds late. No, you were actually three minutes and ten seconds late. Right. Uh, so, so I, I agree with that. I pretty much always go with three and ten when I am the head judge. Yeah. Uh, I think that's that's a better policy. But then again, by saying better, I could be opening a can of worms. There are a lot of judges who do it different. No, that's sure, interesting. Yeah. I, I never really thought about it. Like, I, I don't, I usually give zero and ten, but I usually, you know, stand up there and wait on them maybe a little bit longer than I should. Right. This way you don't have to wait. You're like, yeah. well, that guy's running, so he's going to get there in 
well within his three minutes. Right. Huh. I mean, some of it depends on the TO too. You know, like if I if I'm at a particularly big event with you know or ATO and that TO is like, well, you know, I really prefer zero ten. Okay, I mean, you know, it's not set in stone. We'll certainly honor that request. Yeah. But if there are multiple t- pairings, you know, multiple pairings boards, multiple sets of table numbers out sometimes, then, you know, it's it's always worth looking at, well, why do we do 0-10? Why do we do 3-10? Does 3-10 fit this a little bit better? So what do you do about players who try to take advantage of the 3 and uh, I usually go ahead and remind them that they're going to, I mean, they're going to get an extension equal to the amount of time it takes them, but I'm going to remind them that extension's actually holding up the rest of the event, mm-hmm. and that if I see them sort of dirtling, they need to go find their seat. It's 310 as courtesy, not as a right. Right, yeah, and that's, that's what I was kind of getting at, is I've seen players uh, take advantage of that in the sense of, you know, oh, well, he's starting the round, but I know I'm going to have three minutes, so I'm going to go outside and, and, and smoke, or I'm going to go grab something from a vending machine real quick because I know I've got three minutes. Right. And uh, and that we want to discourage that kind of behavior. Right, I'm not a big fan of that. All right, well, Ben, as somebody outside of this show, perhaps you could give me assistance on the next tournament error? Uh, slow play. As you said, <laughs> you do it. Yeah. Do it. Slow play is, is probably one of the better tournament errors because I love Legacy and the topic of slow play comes up in Legacy all the time. Yeah. You, you know that's not the next one though, right? I'm just mad. Let's continue with slow play. <laughs> Come back to it. <laughs> all right. So, well, like, what kind of stuff, uh, you know, obviously with things like Four Horsemen, uh, slow play can come up, but what, what else comes up in Legacy uh, where slow play is, is a big, big problem? High Tide. Single turns taking 15 to 20 minutes is a common misconception of being slow play. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of players who are like, and it actually came up in Modern with the Eggs deck. Players are like, that guy, his turn is taking 20 minutes. Like, obviously, this is slow play, and it's like, well, no, he's actually advancing the game state, which is another tricky thing to define anyway, but he's actually doing things, he's advancing the game state. His The game state isn't where it was before. He's making meaningful plays. Just because his turn is taking a while, that doesn't necessarily make it slow play. Right, and we had a, a legacy player playing high tide at one of our events recently, and it was, I, 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 we called time, and he proceeded to take turn one, and it took ten minutes to kill his opponent in that turn. And, right. uh, it, it was just crazy to watch him just, you know, high tide, brainstorm, time spiral, you know, so on and so forth. It was great and really annoying at the same time. But it didn't count as slow play because he was actually playing at a very quick pace. Uh, but he was just casting so many spells. Right. Yeah, I hate when I walk up to those matches and the, the other, the other, the opponent looks bored and I'm just like, all right, this must be slow. Oh no, the guy's playing super quick. It's just, he's not, he's not doing anything fun. Uh, another common slow play thing is a player not having finished their pregame procedure. I think mm-hmm. it gets forgot about quite a bit. You know, somebody wants to make sure they shuffle really thoroughly, and so they do, but it takes them, you know, five minutes to start the game to shuffle. That's actually slow play as well. Right. Right. In fact, there's specifically, well, we already talked about the three-minute amount of time for pregame procedure. Right. Uh, that's, you know, if you break that, that's between games. Like, between game one and two, it takes you more than three minutes to present your deck. You, you are in violation of the slow play uh, tournament error. Right. You've committed the, to the slow play tournament error technique. I misspoke. Um, so that's, that's I agree. That's one thing that gets overlooked a lot. But at the same time, uh, it's one thing we should be enforcing a lot because, uh, you know, it's one of the only ways that, that you have where judges typically 
give a slow play warning without kind of pushing the player along beforehand. And sometimes they will. I've, I've definitely sat at matches and said, you know, oh, you, you know, just to let you know you're two and a half minutes into sideboarding, you know, please present your decks. Actually, but, agree anyway, because really we should sort of give an initial prod because that's usually all it takes. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I need you to go ahead and make a play, please. Right. Right. Yeah. So slow play is, uh, unfortunately, it's one of those things where I've, it's one of two tournament error penalties that I've had to give to, that I've had to give and then upgrade in the same game, like in consecutive turns. And it's very unfortunate when that happens. So you want to, you know, when a judge prods you to, to, to play faster, you're probably on the verge of getting a slow play penalty, so you should play faster. Yeah. Right. That sounds about right. They have another example for slow play here. I can't say I have this one come up, but it mentions a uh, a player getting up from their seat to go look at standings or basically go do anything during a match uh, without getting permission ahead of time. I've never had to give that one, but I guess it's something that could happen. I don't. Yeah, I think we're pretty good now about like I make sure that we pull standings down just yeah. to sort of dodge this problem. And it seems to me like players are usually pretty good now, but about just letting a judge know like, hey, I gotta go to the bathroom, please. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and the one thing is, uh, if, if a player asks you to go to the bathroom, just let them go to the bathroom. Right. No, note the time. Yeah. And then let them go to the bathroom. Tell them to call a judge when they get back. And then come over and let the, you know, give them the appropriate time extension. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's okay. the best thing to do. I've seen some judges have been like, well, what if he, blah. What if he's checking outside notes? I wonder what penalty that would be, Ben McDole. Or anything like that, you know, during his bathroom break. But, you know, just, just let the guy go to the bathroom. <laughs> It's, there is, that's a, that's a completely different. Yeah, that would be, wouldn't it? Right, that's also a tournament. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there next. Um, so that's, that's, uh, interesting. I did have a situation where that all, that, that came up, uh, and when it, you know, sometimes players ask to go to the bathroom at very awkward times. I had a player in an event that I was, uh, judging go, you know, Kataxian Pro View, and his opponent reveals his hand, and he's playing some weird, you know, homebrew deck that nobody's yeah. seen before, and he's like, you know, he's in like a 3-0 bracket. And, uh, and his opponent looks at his hand and then immediately calls a judge and asks to go to the bathroom. Oh, that, that is a little. And I'm like, that seems really shady. Yeah. And, but I mean, there are other times, there are even times when you might ask them if they can wait. Like, I've had players raise their hand and ask me if they can go to the bathroom during a cold draft at a GP. That's a really awkward time to ask. Yeah, that. that's. You know, that's, that's, I'm gonna ask you if you can wait. Now, if you tell me it's an emergency, I'm probably going to immediately go to the head judge and be like, this is what's up. Because that's a super awkward time to ask about that. And, and in all of these situations, they might have been looking for what our next uh, error is, outside assistance. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah? Hold on. I would look okay. into it, but unfortunately, um, we didn't mention what to do if it is slow play. Oh, oh, my bad. This stuff actually still. Because there's another common misconception, which is once you've gone to turns, slow play doesn't apply anymore. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's that's very wrong. Players often think that way. They hear time is called. There's the big sigh, and then they sort of slow down. Yep. And that's actually another really bad thing because their slow play is actually more applicable than any other time because now we're literally just probably waiting for those matches. Yep. Yeah. Speaking of turns, uh, what were you gonna say, CJ? So, well, first off, let's say slow play is a warning, right? If you actually have to give the penalty, you've already given the prod. And they're still not playing any faster. And I would like to point out one thing really quickly. Yeah. Is, is that this, this prod we're talking about, uh, you know, it's not really codified in the, the, the MTR. Or I'm sorry, or the, or the MTR or the IPG. 
it's it's something we do. We we as a matter of best practice, we prod the player, hey, we need you to play faster. Uh, but you know, if you get that question on a practice test, for example, the answer is you give them a warning. You don't give them a caution. Right. Well, it's actually listed in the philosophies for slow play now. Yeah, it says a comment of, I need you to play faster as often appropriate and all that is needed. Further slow play should be penalized. But, but you're 100% right. If this was on a practice test, I would like to believe that the answer would be slow play. Well, it's actually always been one of our things where you're supposed to give them a, a direct statement or a statement such as, I need you to play faster. Yeah. Or you step in and issue the warning. Yeah. Yeah. Alright, so if you do give that slow play warning though, give the actual written down warning, you also give an extra turn to each player, so that when they go into extra turns, they get uh, extra turns to handle the, the slow play, so where they normally have five extra turns, they would have seven extra turns. But hey, wait, what if it's two-headed giant? Is that, is that a serious question? Yeah, it's a serious question. Oh. Okay, um, sorry. If if uh, if we give an extra turn per player is, at regular games, what do we yeah, give in two-headed giant? It's just gonna, it's still going to be one extra turn per team in two-headed right. giant. Now, that, this only is true if you're not already in extra turns. Correct. You, you can't you can't play slowly to get the penalty so that you get another extra turn and extra that doesn't work. Yeah. So yeah, don't don't do that. And if if for some reason the slow play has significantly affected the results, uh, even if you don't classify it as stalling, you can bring that up to the head judge and the head judge can upgrade the penalty. Yeah, I don't even like Ben or either one of you, do you have an example of that kind of situation? I'm not even sure where that could happen. Because there's a thin line between that and the cheating infraction of stalling. I mean, it, it can be unintentional and just severely damage the match. But right. at that point, if, I mean, we should really step in before it's gone on long enough to where it's severely damaged the match. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, that's the part I don't understand. I mean, I could see it if, if maybe a player calls a judge over and he's like, you know, my opponent's been shuffling for five minutes, so I've been sitting here waiting. And then that happens, you know, multiple games or something like that. Maybe something, but you know, not not too often. I think will that happen? All right. So yeah, let's let's jump uh let's jump back an infraction to outside assistance, which I had a perfect segue for, and then Ben ruined it. Oh, outside assistance. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to go to outside assistance. I, I don't know if you noticed. Oh, completely necessary. Yeah, I'm sure you did. Outside assistance is when a person or object gives assistance from outside of the game that you're in. And I say uh, object because, you know, one thing is if, if I'm playing a game and I turn to my buddy and say, hey, would you make this attack here? That is requesting outside assistance. If uh, my buddy's sitting there and I didn't ask for anything, but he's like, you know, you should block like this, that would also be outside assistance uh, for him. He did it, not me. And uh, additionally, if you have notes from outside the tournament during a game, you cannot look at those, and if you do, that would be outside assistance. Well, to be more specific, not just outside the tournament, but notes that you, that were made before that game began. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That. It's yeah. also worth noting that you can look at those while you're sideboarding, just not mid-game. Right. Exactly. Uh, that also uh, all that also applies to getting any advice during a draft or a um, during deck construction of of a draft or sealed tournament. Now, this this penalty is also one of the reasons judges need to be careful when they're answering judge calls, because the, the definition of this says uh, player, spectator, or other tournament participant. Well, judges fall into that category. So you have to be careful not to give outside assistance when you're answering questions, because sometimes that happens accidentally. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to make sure you answer the question ask at competitive competitive REL uh, and not and not give them strategy advice that they didn't ask you for. Right. Uh, and that's that's something that can that, that a lot of newer judges, that's a mistake they accidentally make. Um, they, they sometimes try to clarify game states that don't need to be clarified uh, and end up giving outside assistance. Yeah, yeah. A big one I've seen is um, like uh, we'll get we'll get to deck deckless problem a little bit later. But if they 
forgot to de-sideboard, and I still have one of those sideboard cards in the deck. Uh, when you're writing out the penalty, you don't want to you don't want to put down what that sideboard card was that was still in the deck because that would be giving information to the opponent that they shouldn't normally have had. Things like that. If you discover that during a deck check, mm-hmm. absolutely. So, is there anything else about uh, outside assistance we should talk about? I think we talked about most of. Yeah, the things. I mean, like I've I've seen people try to reference their deck list during a match. That's not okay. Mm-hmm. Many other things. Ben, did you have anything? Well, what's yeah, the it's important to note that there's a very specific cutoff for when this infraction actually applies, which is after they've sat for the match. So if I'm standing at a pairings board and I'm going to play CJ, and someone comes up to me and they're like, "Man, CJ is playing elves. You better kill this guy, this guy, this guy." I'm like, oh, cool, thanks for the advice, and that person is 100% correct. Well, that's really unfortunate for CJ, but it's not actually outside assistance. Yeah. So we, we've drawn a very specific line, but if we sit down, that person walks over and goes, hey, watch out, CJ's playing elves. Well, that's really bad news for them, because at that point, the infractions really started to apply. What if I sit down, but then get up to talk to the guy? Ah, uh, well, it says once they've sat All there. right. So I think, you know, the fact you're no longer sitting doesn't change the fact you at one point sat. Thought I could break the system there. No, no, no. Good try though. The the uh, philosophy for outside systems also mentions that you know you can't you can have altered art on cards, but you can't have altered art in such a way that it's giving you gameplay advice. Right. So. Right. Uh, and and that's that's really going to be like a lot of alters. That's going to be kind of up to the head judge. Yes. You know, like I've had some head judges tell me, you know, it essentially has to be a flow chart for how this combo works. Right. For the outside assistance for me. I think the best. I think the best example of this is someone who has all of their sideboard cards physically marked for this in for X matchup. Right. Right. That would definitely be a, an outside assistance type example. Yeah, that's pretty good. And um, outside assistance being that you can um, gain a lot of advantage from it, and we want to discourage it very heavily, has a penalty of a match loss. Right. You will lose whatever match you are currently in. Or if you're if you're that guy standing outside the event and saying, hey, you should block like this, you will get a match loss during your next event if you are in the tournament. Actually, I want to jump back to what I just said there for a second. I'm not sure that, that my example is correct since we allow them to view sideboarding cards. But not during the game. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. I don't know. Well, consider, consider if those were just notes. Would you allow him to look at those during the match? Oh, I see your point, because you can view your sideboard during the match. Yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly. Right, take away the card, and if those notes are acceptable, well, then great. It's probably fine. You know, if I've written on a piece of paper, hey, smash with Goblin pile driver. <laughs> That guy does. He turns sideways. But if I've written, you know, hey, don't forget to untap your Arbor Elf because it's important for blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's, you know, significantly different. Yeah. Or I guess Nettle Sentinel would be the better example. Like, hey, don't forget to untap your Nettle Sentinel where you cast a green spell and then tap him again later. Like, that would be, you know, a little bit worse. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, so, yeah, the, the penalty, as CJ said, is a match loss. And this is this is not something that uh, I've ever seen get downgraded for any reason uh, once it's once it's occurred. Just for the record, I've heard players ask for it pretty consistently whenever this comes up. Mm. You know, oh, well, it wasn't that bad. Can't you downgrade it? No. You know, another thing, actually, without getting too deep into triggers, but since since you're allowed to miss your opponent's trigger, you know, you don't want to stand there and be pointing out triggers. Right. That should have happened because that is also outside assistance. But, yeah, it's a match loss. It's pretty harsh. Sometimes it's tough to keep your, your mouth closed, but... You gotta. And to be totally clear here, it's not necessarily the person that receives the outside assistance, unless they specifically requested it. It's the person that gave the outside assistance that's gonna get the penalty. That's, so that reminds me, that reminds me of a funny story about outside assistance. Uh, I, uh, there was a, 
an event where a player had a Garrett Wild speaker in play, and somehow he only controlled one land. And uh, so he called the judge and asked the judge, "Judge, can I untap? Can I untap my land with Garrett Wild speaker's ability, even though it says two target lands?" And the judge said, "No, Garrett's ability requires two targets." Uh-huh. Uh huh. Which is a correct answer. And what he could have done is targeted one of his opponents already untapped lands in this situation, right? And been fine. But the, the the player didn't quite understand that, so so he goes, "Well, can't I just target by one land?" He goes, "Garrick's ability requires two targets." And the player next to him, who was in a match, looks over at him and goes, "Just target your opponent's land." Oh no! And then so we had to turn to him, deal with that situation, turn back to the player who was who was uh, playing Garrick Wildspeaker, and he still looked up and went, "So can I untap this one land with Garrick Wildspeaker's ability?" <laughs> See, I kind of think that. I don't, I'm, it feels kind of like bad customer service to give them the repeated same answer there. I agree. Uh, I was not the judge giving them the answer, but this is what the judge did. Uh, I don't think I would explicitly say how they need to use the ability, but you know, you you got to be you know, that's a very fine line in that situation. Right. Because I don't want to tell them, oh, you can target your opponent's land here. Like that's that's outside assistance. If right. they ask me, can I can I uh, tap my land? Uh, you know, well, your land's a legal target, but it requires two targets or something of that effect. They still don't understand. You know, Garrick's ability, point to it, Garrick's ability, you know, it, it requires two target lands, uh, and this is only one target land or something of that effect. But you don't want to say, this is how you do what you are trying to do. Right. Exactly, yeah. It's, it's a really fine line. Yeah. So, Ben, I, um, I read an article on the internet that said that every day you're shuffling. Oh, that's true. Yeah. That's absolutely true. But what would happen if you were doing it insufficiently? Failure to follow official announcements. You're awful. I hate you. <laughs> Fine. Uh, so if I made an announcement that you shuffle sufficiently <laughs> and you didn't do it, would that be failure to follow official announcements? That's, that's super bad. <laughs> uh, I mean, the thing about failure to follow official announcements is you have to be you have to be really careful because. In the uh, sports and white conduct section, there's an infraction which happens to include the phrase failure to follow a direct instruction. And a lot of times players will sort of get them confused and even some judges will get them confused. So official announcements are sort of a more general announcement that's made to a group of people. So, you know, if I'm talking to a whole group of people, I'm like, hey, I need you guys to, you know, be out of this area, please. We need to clean it up for top eight. And then later on, they're still there. Well, then, you know, that's failure to follow official announcements. But if I'm like, hey, CJ, I need you to stop performing X behavior, and he still does it, then that's a direct problem. If I was like, CJ, I need you to stop, you know, please stop renewing your subscription to Cat Fancy, but he just kept doing it, that would be failure to follow a direct instruction of a tournament official, mm-hmm. which is a now, little... Is there- now, this might be a little bit of a corner case, but is there ever a situation in which you would upgrade failure to follow official announcements? I mean, if it happened a second time, but not not if it's not on a first offense that I can think of. I mean, it would uh, have to be pretty severe. The one situation I can think of is a PTQ where we had a fire alarm go off, mm-hmm. and after after the head judge told everyone to get up and you know, go out the door, there was still a player there trying to sit there and play his match, and that was... That was not appropriate, and he was refusing to get up and leave because his match wasn't over, and he didn't want to leave his cards. Um, oh, okay. I mean, in that case, it almost becomes. Notice though that it's at that point, it's sort of pared down to a single person, right? Right. So then it becomes. So yeah, I, I guess then it becomes. You are correct. It becomes. Uh, 
direct instruction instead of just an official announcement. Right. So, I mean, something like a fire drill, we always have these things we talk about, um, which are, you know, extreme and, and unusual circumstances. Table collapses. Right. Table collapses, things like right. that. And this is like something like a fire drill, I think, would be along those lines. Yeah, I agree. That's, that's pretty true. But the, the, the awkward part is a player refusing. I couldn't believe a player would do that. Like, just, I'm not going anywhere. I didn't yeah, understand. I, I was so shocked. Especially it's something like a vintage tournament where, you know, I've had players who are like, you know, I don't, we deck check somebody at a legacy event and he's like, judge, my duels are all beta. Uh, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable just sitting here and we're like, okay, you know, you can watch from a fair distance so you can't see your opponent's deck or anything if it'll make you feel better. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's stuff like that that comes up, and that's fine. That's not a super big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, yeah, that's good. So what's the penalty? Did you guys mention that? Oh, well, we talked about the possibility of upgrading it, but I don't think we specifically mentioned this is a warning. It's a warning. Yep, just a right. simple warning. So uh, when you when you give those those decks back, did you have anything else you wanted to say about failure to follow official announcements? Uh, I didn't. Did okay. you, Ben? No, no. no. Okay. When you give those decks back, you know, after a uh, deck check, they usually need to be shuffled. What would happen if they just didn't shuffle it enough? I'm blanking. Yeah, I don't know. I got, I got no idea. <laughs> All right, let's talk now, about see, it. Now, see, now I have that the, the gathering song stuck in my head. Where, <laughs> you know, shuffle them up. Yeah. You got to shuffle some more because you ain't shuffled enough. Like, that's that's stuck in my head right now. But yeah, I've never heard this song you're talking about. It's pretty funny. Like, it's a terrible song, actually, but but it's still funny if you, if you play Magic. Um, anyway. <laughs> All right. The penalty is insufficient shuffling. Oh. Oh. Oh, yeah. That's the one. Yeah, I remember that. You shuffle insufficiently. Right. This one is fairly self-explanatory. I mean, it means you didn't shuffle well enough, but not, but you know, not intentionally. If it was intentional, it would be manipulation of game materials, which we had a, uh, that was one of our earliest shows was about that infraction. That is true. But yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, if you are, uh, you fetch a land out of your deck and then you do like a single pile shuffle or pile count is just wants them to be called, <laughs> that is insufficient shuffling. You have not sufficiently ensure that your deck was random. Uh, totally failing to shuffle is insufficient shuffling. It is not a game rule violation. <laughs> well, geez, I could see the argument for it to be. Um, you know, for getting to shuffling, shuffling your library after searching for a card it, it is actually an example of insufficient shuffling. Exactly. In, in energy. But, uh, but intentionally not shuffling your library, well, that, that is just that's straight true. up. Yeah. yeah. That's cheating. Um, but yeah, if you, if you just do a single pile count or you just do a single ripple shuffle after you search, uh, that, that's not enough, right? You, you easily know where some of those cards are. And even if you're not trying to cheat with that, you know, the, the fact that that is, there's potential for abuse there requires us to give a penalty and that, that penalty is warning right. in this situation. Right. Um, and the key here is too, you don't have to know the exact position of a card. Um, the phrase relative position used to be in this infraction. I believe it was removed not too, too long ago, but kind of the underlying idea is still here. If I know that, you know, my progenitus is in, say, the bottom third of my deck because I didn't shuffle it sufficiently, mm-hmm. then that's that's an issue. You know, it's definitely insufficient shuffling at that point. So it's it's not enough to know. You don't have to know the exact position of a card. If I know roughly where it is, you know, if I know it's in sort of the bottom third or the top half of my deck or something, right. that's still problematic enough. This came up quite frequently, 
when after M13 came out and Battle of Wits became standard legal again, uh, we had we had about those verticals. They were not. Uh, well, I, I actually just separate from that at our tournaments, we had a number of people that were uh, that they search for land and then they just take you know whatever section of the deck they had searched, shuffle it and put it back on top. And I was like, that that's not not good enough. Uh, and they didn't understand why. I had to explain that concept of, well, you know anything you saw there is still in that section of the deck. So we, we can't, we can't have you do that. Right. Um, it, it's, it's unfortunate. And it's actually worth noting that this isn't just for shuffling when it's required by a game mechanic, but any really sort of randomization type effect. So one of the examples is Cascade. Yeah, I was going to bring that up, but you stole it. Yeah. So it's, it's not just enough to, you know, like Greenstone Zenith, if I don't shuffle, that specifically says shuffle. But, you know, with the Cascade mechanic, if I, you know, reveal a top four and then I just put them right back on the bottom, well, you know, I didn't really do enough. I'm not supposed to know that my bottom card is, you know, card X. I need to know something different. All right. Yeah, and it's just shuffling. It's pretty easy. Oh, if you give the penalty, obviously you shuffle the deck. Right. And what's the penalty? It's a warning. Yeah. yeah, I just said it. Yeah. And it's worth noting that it used to be a game loss, too. Really? Yes, it was absolutely a game loss. And wow. newly minted level four judge Jared Silva actually sort of led the charge on making it a warning. And he had some really great points. He could probably articulate them, you know, better than I could because I was on the other camp, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. But uh, he managed to sway me with, well, do we really want to give someone a game loss when they crack a fetch land and just grab the bottom card, which happens to be a land? Yeah. Put their deck back down. Like, is that something we want to game loss someone for? And, you know, the answer is clearly no, but. Yeah. yeah. I haven't seen. So here's. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I have one question about this. You know, the, the remedy listed in the, in the FTR, or I'm sorry, the FG. I keep saying FTR. Uh, in the, the FTR is, uh, uh, that it's, says shuffle the deck thoroughly, taking into account any parts of the deck ordered through gameplay. Obviously that means, you know, if they, if they scried and they know what's on top of bottom, you'll separate that out. Then, uh, when it says shuffle the deck thoroughly, it's okay to have them shuffle the deck. Like you as the judge don't necessarily have to pick up their deck and physically shuffle it, even though that's what it says. Yeah. Um, you, you can have them do that and present it to their opponent. I've, I've absolutely heard that come up where judges think they have to be the one to shuffle it. I'm like, I'm not going to shuffle it. You can shuffle it. Like, <laughs> I mean, come on. I'm not going to sit there and do that. You got it, guys. You should allegedly know how to shuffle a deck, even though I know I'm giving you the insufficient shuffling penalty right now. But yeah, this is something I haven't seen come up too much. Uh, I saw it a lot more when Cascade was around, because people all the time, they would just reveal the cards and just throw them on the bottom. But generally, I think people are pretty good about shuffling. Yeah, Cascade, Shocklands, things like that. Oh, uh, I guess one thing that is worth mentioning, too, is you need to use multiple methods. Yeah. So... And it really specifically, pile shuffling is the issue. Because pile shuffling creates a repeatable pattern. Right. And that's sort of an issue. Like, we, we can, if we know the position of a card, and all we do is pile shuffle, then we still know the position of the card. Right. Yeah, and we, we actually went into that in depth on an episode that we spent on uh, manipulation of game materials, and we'll probably include a link to that in the uh, in the show notes as well for anybody that's really interested in this concept of you know why pile counting is not is not sufficient. Uh, that we we went into that we kind of beat that to death actually already. Um, so I missed that one. I I regularly follow Judge Casper, but I haven't. <laughs> behind. Um, we, yeah, we, we, that was actually, it was one of like, it was like the second or third episode yeah, that, it was that one jammed. of the very first ones. It's actually before Brian came on board. Yeah. Alright, let's hop on to our next penalty. You mean failure to follow official announcements, right? No. Fair, <laughs> did that one. Failure to follow official announcements, the key is. <laughs> 
Now, draft so, procedure violation. I mm. have almost never seen this given. Me neither. I've given it, I think, once. Um, I actually have seen it given once. It was at GP San Jose during the during day two, uh, and it was specifically for the first example listed. A player passed a boost in the wrong direction. Okay. What what is draft procedure violation? Uh, well, the, the strict definition is a player commits a technical error during the draft. Uh, it does not cover any attempts to view or reveal cards that are hidden. That's handled by cheating and information violation. Uh, but this is for, you know, you're in the draft, you did something wrong, passed pack the wrong way, you took too long to pick something. And, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, these competitive called drafts, they actually tell you this is how long you have to drive. You have 15 seconds to make your pick. And then you make your pick and they tell you, you know, pass the cards to your left. Um, and it's all very, very called and, and set. And if you break those time limits, that's a draft procedure violation. Right. Uh, oh, this is a good question. I actually don't know the answer to this. Would it not be a draft procedure violation if, you know, I have seven picks and, uh, after I pass my pack, I pick up the picks and look at them in a competitive event? I know I'm not supposed to do that. But it used to be hidden information violation. Yeah. Is that, is that really going to be cheating? No, it's not cheating because it's information you have reasonable access to. Okay. So you, the idea is that you theoretically know what you've already taken. Yeah. So you're not really seeking information that you didn't have access to before. I'm very hesitant to call it draft procedure violation, but it feels like what probably fits best because it certainly can't be something like looking at extra cards because right. it's happening in match. I mean, it's not a gameplay error. Right. So, I mean, it's it's possible that it's one of those things where it doesn't fit, you know, particularly well into an infraction. So, you know, a verbal statement, you know, admonishing the behavior is probably enough to correct. Okay. Uh, I think in a, in a cold draft, however, that's usually something that is announced beforehand. Right. So, so that that could, in that case, it usually falls under failure to follow the journalist. Right. Right. If if they've made that as an announcement, failure to follow actually fits perfect. Good thing we did that one earlier. <laughs> sure. You know, th- there are some ways around it too, like to plug Star City a little bit. Whenever they did their drafts, whenever they did their, their draft opens, not only was it called, the packs would come in a like a hard plastic container. Uh huh. And the way they got around it was you put your pick face down in the container. Yeah. Yep. It's almost impossible to pick those up without making a scene. Right. Exactly. So it was actually a great workaround for something like that where. You have, you know, a wide variety of draft experience levels. Cause, you know, like I've seen a guy who he's like, I draft every FNM. And then I, a guy next to him is like, I've never drafted before. And then at the same table, I have Sol Malka just like salivating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Did we mention that's a warning? That's a warning. There's not much more to do. Drafts can go wrong. Like really bad and, and we could, I don't want to get too deep into it, but you know, there are all kinds of crazy things that can happen in a draft. Uh, some guy shuffles two packs together and all kinds of crazy stuff, but I, I usually just try to just handle those when they come up. It's difficult always to, um, to write down everything that could happen. Right. There, there are a lot of small things that can go wrong and you know, the policy can't codify everything. Right. But especially in like a call drafts, you're usually pretty safe on. A lot of those, you know, there's a 15-card pack because the 8 and 7 got shuffled together. Yeah. You know, you don't have that come up too much anymore. Yeah, so, it's it's nearly impossible. In the call drafts, for, for people who haven't been in them, there's a judge literally saying, saying, you know, open up your pack. You should have 15 cards. Um, You know, then he says you have 45 seconds or whatever. And then at the end of those seconds, he's like, okay, now lay down the cards to your left. You should have 14 cards, you know, and so on and so forth. Like a judge is stand, standing there saying every little draft of Every little thing that should be happening. So it's very difficult to really get any significant mess up there. 
So next we have, I could have segued into that, I'm sorry, but next we have <laughs> the, 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 probably the most often confused, uh, term error, yeah. player communication violation. A lot of times, uh, people think things are player communication violations when they are not. I think we did an episode on this before. We did. We did a whole uh, episode on it, so I don't want to go too deep into it. We'll, we'll link that episode in the show notes if, if people really want to uh, learn about it. But I, I, I surprisingly, uh, I have given more PCBs out in the past probably month than I have given out in my entire time judging. <laughs> that's, uh, that's odd. I gave, well, I gave a couple out for uh, at the sealed PCQ that we had. There were a number of people that were accidentally misrepresenting which creatures were detained. Yeah. Uh, by thinking creatures were detained a turn later than they were actually detained because they were going too fast in the game. And, uh, so I ended up, and that's, that's misrepresenting the, the game state. They had the derived information there. That, that was one. But the, the, the one that really sticks out of my mind was actually the example we used in our previous show, which was a player that was using a die to represent the power and toughness of this Tarmogoyf. No, that's PCV really. What's that? I don't know that I'd really call that PCV. Yeah, I mean, I've heard multiple opinions on that one. I, I wouldn't, in fact. I why would, would you? Why would like, you not call that a PCV? Probably not PCV. Why, why would you not call that a PCV? Well, the, I mean, the issue there is that he's—is he misrepresenting his opponent's graveyard too? There, like Tarmogoyf isn't just tracking his graveyard for one. Right. So the question is: Is he responsible for? That contents that graveyard, which are also derived information. Uh, like if he represents the derived information, but not completely, because well, he, he doesn't if, represent it completely. It's derived information, but he is he is representing it incorrectly. Is the problem right? If, if, he, if he if he puts a power on, or if he puts a counter on his Tarmogoyf and he puts it at one and says his power is one, then right. and then but the problem is the dice represents the cards and the card types in the graveyard which are derived. Sure. And he doesn't have to represent derived information completely. So you're telling me that if I, if I, if there are four different types of cards in graveyards and I have Tarmogoyf out and, and I put a die on a four and then I play something and it goes to the graveyard and I mean, I have five creature types that I don't have to move the die up to five and that that's okay. I'm saying it's messy is what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, okay. I mean, I, I, if I, if, if I attack you and you say, you know, something like, how much am I going to take? I can tell you, you know, I have instant sorcery land and creature in my graveyard. Yes. If I also have an enchantment, what I've just told you is perfectly fine. Yes. But I, if I said something more definitive about the number of types, then that might be a problem. I mean, it, it ends up being a bigger issue, I think, than it's worth. Okay. But I, I don't think it would be – I don't think we can call it PCV, unfortunately. Okay. I, I, I will say that I fall firmly in the opposite camp here, uh, which is just – I guess an example of judges disagreeing. So I'm sorry if I'm stepping on your toes there, <laughs> but I, I I strongly believe that this is a PCV. It's an uh, east-west so fight. Uh oh. Uh oh. We're gonna we're gonna have some problems here. No, it's so. So anyway, <laughs> we went a little deeper in there that I'm into, but um, to to be clear, a PCV is literally something in violation of section 4.1 of the MTR which is called player communication. Right. So it is a violation of that policy. It is not players saying things that are weird. So uh, the most common example I would use is uh, I say, I got to go home and practice with my bow. And then you hear go from that and <laughs> go and take your turn. That is not a player communication violation. I did not break anything in that policy. 
that policy covers what's free, derived, and private information. Uh, but if I say, you know, how many cards are in your hand, and you say three, but in fact you have four cards in your hand, well, that is intention or not intentionally, but misrepresenting derived information, and that is a player communication violation. Right. So, but if I say how many cards are in your hand, you say I don't know. You just count them. That's okay to say too, because we don't have to discuss derived information. Yeah, section 4.1 on its own has some pretty fine intricacies. Yeah, and that's and that's why I'm going to tell people to go over to that other episode because that's we discussed that whole section in pretty good detail. Yeah, there's a, a fantastic article by Nick Sefton who's a fantastic judge in the UK who I believe authored a good portion of the communication section where he discusses a lot of that free derived information and why we've chosen the differences we've we've chosen it's also our great episode and we're great judges so no i'm not i'm not saying you're not but you but you are well this were judge cast north no one would have called that (laughs) that's all i'm saying so i troll i mean if you want to bring that up we keep talking about it no that's fine okay i didn't i didn't think that (laughs) all right let's move on to the next one if um if my name was mark (laughs) and i had my whole deck would you say I had a deck of marked cards? That's bad. Yeah, that was really bad. That's really that one, bad. That one was pretty rough. Yeah, that was, yeah. Yeah. All right, what is marked cards? Somebody tell me. Marked cards are just cards that are somehow uniquely identifiable from the rest of the deck. When you look at it, uh, when they're when they're basically, you look at it from the back or the side of the deck. I mean, from the back of the side, you could you could tell that that card is is different, or you could tell where it is. Uh, or you have some number of cards that, that you could tell where they are or could see from the top that they're different, uh, that that would make it uniquely, uh, identifiable and in a way that could potentially give you an advantage. So, you know, this includes everything from small marks on your sleeves to playing with, you know, double-faced cards inside sleeves that are transparent. You know, the, the, both of these are marked cards because they're, they're, Obviously distinguished. So the, the big difference with marked cards is that if it's something that, uh, it, the, the penalty for marked cards is a warning, but the head judge has the option to upgrade this to a game loss if they believe that the player could gain, uh, I'm sorry, if the markings would clearly compromise the integrity of the game if the player noticed. Right. So you get like a significant advantage. So, uh, one example could be, you know, maybe you have your basic lands all in these green sleeves and then you buy some more green sleeves and you shuffle in your, you know, your sealed deck, uh, also green sleeves, but the two sleeves are like slightly different shades. So if you looked at the deck, you'd be able to tell, you know, this card's a land, this card isn't. So every single land is marked and every single uh, other card isn't. That would be a, a significant enough ex- um, situation to upgrade to a game loss because there is a, you know, if you notice that, that's, that's a pretty, that's a pretty big advantage. And then you also already brought up double face cards in sleeves that you can see through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are, that's a situation where a game loss is also appropriate. Uh, it's, it's quite clear that, that when he sees that card, he could, if he were to notice, know exactly what was coming next on his deck. Or even worse, could be arranging his deck when he's shuffling by noticing where it is. One thing to mention is that if you're playing any format that isn't limited of some sort, it's if you're not using sleeves, it's pretty much guaranteed that you have marked cards. It, it would be pretty tough to have a have a deck that's gone through any amount of play unsleeved 
and not have marked cards in some form. Uh, that's, that's probably true. Like, I think there are times when that is not true, but for the most part, I yeah. completely agree. Okay, well, I was head judge of a legacy tournament once, and some guy didn't have sleeves, and I was like, no. That's crazy. No, that's buddy, crazy. you got a, a, a legacy? Yeah. Hat? All right. Uh, yeah, I could see a standard one maybe, but I was like, buddy, there's no way. Ben, did you have anything to add about mark cards? I think it's fairly straightforward. Oh, yeah, a couple things, actually. Um, with sleeves, a lot of times, you know, pretty much any sleeve is marked if we look hard enough. Right. So, you know, if, if every sleeve has a similar ding, well, whatever, it's not really so much marked cards. It's we need to be able to distinguish that these cards are noticeably different from the rest. Uh-huh. Another really, really common misconception that I've heard so many different things about is whether or not foils themselves are marked. Oh, yeah, that's a great point to bring up. And it's the answer is no. I mean, foils have a natural tendency to curve just because of the foiling process. But, you know, I've heard people say, well, if all of your lands are foil and nothing else is, then your deck's marked. Sure, if your foils are warped. <laughs> but if your foils are not warped, if they're perfectly flat or if you use perfect fit sleeves, a lot of times that'll take care of it then there's no certain percentage of your deck that has to be foil. There's no amount of your deck that, you know, we need to make sure X number of cards of different types are foil. You know, there's no actual limitations like that. It's really just, are your cards nice and flat? Are the sleeves, you know, in good condition? Okay, well, if so, then your deck is fine. All right. Uh, yeah, the other, the other thing I want to bring up is, say I'm in a uh, sealed event, Return to Ravnica Sealed, and I excitedly play my Annihilating Fire because it's going to win me the game, and in my haste, I uh, I bend the card. I have never seen this happen, but I'm trying to come up with a situation here. If that specific situation happens, so you now have a marked card, right? If something like that, if a card becomes marked throughout regular play in the tournament, the head judge can, but doesn't have to, give you a proxy for that card. Also, I've seen uh, just in a draft, the card comes out marked, or in a sealed specifically, the card has some printing issue, some blotch on the back that makes it marked. It's not uncommon to have something like a crimped card. Right. You know, crimped cards, even in a sleeve, you can still feel the markings, and so that's that's a different problem. Right. That's one of the situations where we can issue a proxy. But if your cards just are messed up when you come in, we can't give you a proxy for that. Like, I have a swamp that's cut into a snowflake. I don't think anyone would let me use that in a real tournament or issue me a right. proxy. Right. That's that's a big thing, too, if, you know... Head judges a discretion on all altered cards, and if they view an altered card to be unacceptable, that's not a situation where it's appropriate to issue a proxy. All right, we have one last tournament error, and honestly, this this one's pretty big. Actually, we'll probably come back to this one as as a full show at some point, but let's go over it a uh, a little bit here, and that is the deck deckless problem. Okay. Obviously, this one only applies at events with deckless. Oh no, it could apply at events without a deckless. Actually, I lied. But what does this mean, a deck deckless problem? It's it's like, it's everything that could go wrong. So say you have 59 cards in a standard deck. That would be a deck deckless problem, because your deck has to have 60 cards. Say your, uh, what else? Deck has banned cards in it. Also a deck deckless problem. Say you presented a deck <laughs> with, um, uh, you forgot the sideboard. Or you forgot the D sideboard before the first match. Yeah, those are all those are all deckless problems. Yeah, all deck deckless. But, but uh, I was well, I was specifically going to bring up the uh, in that particular case, you know, that's something you could notice when you draw an opening hand and call a judge, and that can be downgrade. A lot of players might feel tempted to go, oh god, if I call a judge, they're, they're, I'm going to get in trouble, 
And so they don't. And now they're we're guilty of an entirely different infraction that you don't want to be in that area. Um, so, you know, they should definitely call a judge at that point. Yeah. Um, what was the we, penalty? What are we downgrading to? Oh, we're downgrading from uh, a game loss to a warning. Okay. In that situation. Yeah. So the, the potential for advantage here is fairly high. And due to that, we want to give a significant penalty to dissuade people from trying to run the cheats. Oh, did we talk about the penalty for mark cards? Did I miss that? Uh, we did, in fact, talk about the penalty for mark cards. Talk about that it's a warning but can be upgraded. Okay. Uh, and, and explain why and when it can be upgraded. Yeah. Okay. I must have missed that. My fault. My fault. No problem. Uh, Alright, so back to deck decklist problem. I didn't mention any issues that could be with the deck list, like but, you know, all kinds of things. Uh, same thing. If you list 59 cards on your deck list, even if your deck has 60 cards, if you list 59 on your deck list, that is a deck deck list problem. If you list uh, any number that is not 0 or 15 cards for your sideboard, that is deck deck list problem. Yeah, any, anything I mentioned with deck also applies to deck list, <laughs> <laughs> essentially. I, when I was sitting here about to go over, I was like, no, never mind. I got it. It's done. Uh, there is one thing that can happen on a deck list, though, and that is that if a card, if you write down... What's a good answer? Um, Kamal. If you write down Kamal or Chroma, just write down Kamal or Chroma. Well, there's Kamal Pit Fighter and then Kamal the green one. Or there's a Chroma the red one and a Chroma the white one. Right. So if you say, if you mention just a one word answer, or if you just write down lightning, that would be insane. Like, there's so many cards that lightning could be. Uh, that is also a deck deck list. A problem. Kamal's a little bit tricky though. Was he in, why? Because, we have that nice clause about legends and things. So storyline characters. Right, right. Storyline characters and legends. Yeah, but storyline characters, planeswalkers, things like that. Right. We have we have that line where it's okay. So it's okay to write Tomio. You know, there's only one card, one legendary storyline character named Tomio. But something like Akroma or Kamal, that's why I picked those two, is uh, that's still not unique within that format. I'm assuming Legacy in these situations, since there are two Kamals, so you can't just write Kamal. Right. You know, when, uh, we should get into this a little bit, actually, is um, is when you're assessing stuff like that, you're allowed to take the format into account. And the way I've looked at that, it means literally the format, like standard. So if my deck has – it's mono red with Kamal Pit Fighter, the red one, but mm. I just write Kamal. And uh, this is a legacy event. I'm still going to say this is a deck deckless problem because I'm not looking at like his deck to determine which one it should be. I'm right. looking at the format, what's legal in this format. Right. Yeah, and you guys agree with that? All right. Well, there's no discussion. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I can see some argument for conceivably playable, mm-hmm. but since that line is no longer really present, that's not a too valid of a train of thought anymore. Yeah. You know, if you're playing mono red. It's pretty safe that you mean the mono red Kamal, but you know. We should be clear. Yeah, and and that's kind of an extreme case, but it's you know right. I, I just feel like it, it shouldn't be up to the judge to decide that. Uh, a Johnny is a way better example than everything I just said. Right, a Johnny is a fine fine choice. I mean, I had that situation come up actually at a PTQ where the player had mono white in the main and he had some city of brass on the board, mm-hmm. and so he had a Johnny listed, and we're like, well, it could conceivably be a Johnny Gold main or a Johnny Vengeant because. You have these City of Brass and things in your sideboard. Right. So he wasn't super happy, but, I mean, unfortunately, you know, there's there's not a lot of arguing you can do there when a Johnny Goldmain or Johnny Vengeance is conceivably playable. Right. So, quickly, let's go over how you uh, fix a deck deckless problem. So let's say, Jess, let's say the issue is they have a deck and it's 58 cards, right? The, the physical deck has 58 cards in it. 
Um, so if they've listed 58 cards in their deck list and they have 58 cards actually in their deck, uh, we're going to have them add basic lands of their choice up to up to the appropriate number of the fourth format, which I'm assuming is 60. Uh, so they'll add two lands to their deck, and then they will we will correct the deck list to reflect that, and they will continue playing after we've given them the appropriate penalty. Right, which is a game loss. But what if what if they list 60 cards on their deck list? Uh, what if they list 60 cards on their deck list, but they're only playing 58? Yes. Well, in that case, if they have those cards available, uh, they can correct their deck to to uh, match the deck list. And uh, if they do not have those cards available, we will go with the previous uh, correction. We will add basic lands to the deck. All right, perfect. As long as, those, as long as the cards are legal for the format, of course. All right. And so if we go to the other side, say the deck list has 58 cards, but the deck itself is 60 cards. Well, if the deck list has 58 cards and the deck has 50... Uh, 60. I'm sorry, 60. Yeah, I think I said Then uh, we correct the list to match the deck if the deck is legal for the format. Uh, and what else do we want to talk about with decklist? You already mentioned how we can downgrade. What happens when they're different? I'm playing Ancient Tomb, but I list Ancient Grudge. We use the deck as like the master. So if if they're both if they're both effectively legal, like the decklist is legal, the deck is legal. We use the deck to say what they are truly playing. So we'll change the decklist to match it, and we, we we are going to give the game loss here anyway because they they need to list what is actually in their deck. Fair, Jesse. What's the, what do you think the philosophy is behind that? Why do we do that? The philosophy behind that is that we want the player to be playing you know the deck they brought to the tournament. When somebody says you know let's say they're playing Legacy and they write Johnny Benjamin on their deck list and they're playing Mono White, uh, we're not going to force them to play a red card they can't possibly cast. We we're we're going to make the deck list match. Uh, what, what, what their deck actually is so that they can play the deck they intended to play. Unless we think something shady is going on, in which case we, you know, we move to a different kind of investigation. But for, for this situation, uh, we, we want to make it a good experience for the players while keeping the integrity of the tournament intact and letting them play the deck they brought is the best way to do that. Yeah, I mean, and, and really what's happened here probably is just a player making a small clerical error, right? Right. So, I mean, a clerical error is, it would be really bad for us to just punish them with what would essentially be multiple rounds of game losses. Yeah, that that is absolutely true. Oh wait, I just thought something. What if they list? What if they're playing? It's a mono black deck, but they list eighteen plains instead of swamps. Well, are they playing eighteen swamps? Yeah, they're actually. Playing. Didn't we just did we just discuss this issue? If they have the cards in the deck, then we go with the deck over the deck list. Right, right. Uh, I thought we could downgrade in this situation. Am I wrong? You are wrong. Oh. Used to be able to. That, that, they used to be able to. Oh. Yeah, that, that has actually not been there for a little while. Oh. Um, but that's okay. That's okay. It's, yeah, there's no, uh, no downgrade for the wrong number of lands. That used to be a different thing. I'm not gonna cut that out. I'm gonna live with my shame. <laughs> no, go ahead, cut it out. It's no big deal. No. Never. <laughs> when Brian edited, he cut it, he actually cut out like that, uh, some segment where I was just outright wrong. And I was like, oh, that's nice, Brian. <laughs> really? But I leave them in. Leave them all in. It's a learning tool. Fair enough. Well, that is all the tournament errors. Oh, wait, there, there's so much more to Deck Deckless Problem. I know, and <laughs> I don't know how deep this, that ter- Deck Deckless Problem is, is a topic of its own. Oh, that's fair. What, what, are, what are the greatest hits you want to hit, Ben? For what, Deck Deckless Problem? Yeah. Oh, wow, it comes up every event. Uh, people are drafting on the side, and they decide to toss those cards in with their deck. Oh, the in, in the deck box. Yeah. Yeah, this is something we should definitely bring up. Yes. Yeah. And, so, uh, Really anything with a couple of choice exceptions, anything that's in with your deck and sideboard is part of your sideboard. And the exceptions are if you have been given a promo card, 
So if you go to a Grand Prix and you get that awesome Lotus Cobra, then they actually don't consider that to be part of the sideboard. Yes, thankfully. Yeah, mercifully, because that used to be an issue. Yeah. Any double-faced cards that you're checklisting, those are also not something you have to worry about. And then any uh, cards, if you have, say, two double-faced cards for whatever reason, so if I have eight copies of Delver Secrets, some to represent the day side, some to represent the night side, then we don't consider that to be DDLP either. Um, there is one important thing to note about this, and that is if you have any of those exceptions, you have to have them in different colored sleeves. Yeah. Right. And also, you can get around this if you uh, present your sideboard when you present your deck. Absolutely true. No one does it, but... Correct. You're actually supposed to do that as part of your pregame procedure. Yeah, you're supposed to. Because the judge, the judge is going to wait until you actually present your deck to do a deck check. And so they're going to look at what you actually present. And most people just present the deck out there, you know. But you could present your sideboard. And if you did, then I guess we're not going to look at what's in your deck box. I've just never seen it happen. So that's why I'm a little, like, I don't know. I, I, I see it happen quite a bit. We encourage our players to do that, uh, because it is in the rules. That's good. And, uh, and if they do that, then they're clearing themselves of any issues with cards that might be in their box. Right. Cause they're saying, this is my sideboard. Any, any other points you wanted to hit, Ben? Uh, no, that feels like plenty. Okay, good. Because we have quite a few emails to go into. Now, Ben, I know you're a big fan of JudgeCast North, so you may not know our uh, standard procedure for emails. I am not. So whenever we have a guest on, we have them say mailbag or mail time in some form of loud, obnoxious voice. Usually high-pitched, if possible. Yeah. Can you do this for us, Ben McDowell? Can we just splice a clip of somebody else doing it? (laughs) No. He does. He does. Okay. Uh, you don't have to do it if you don't want to. If you, you know, if you want to be kind of, you know, wishy-washy about it and not help us out, then that, that's okay too. In all fairness, I did fill in last minute. That's true. That's true. Well, we just appreciate it. Go. <laughs> that's good enough. Jess was talking, but we'll let it go. No, I'm uh, no, I was talking. No, I'm answering all my questions in my voice from here on out. All right, please do. All right, I am. All right, our first email comes from Adam. I'm excited. He says, hey, guys, love the cast. Just found a few days ago, and I'm quickly working my way through from the start. We oh, would Judge Cast North. He's going to be so excited. <laughs> uh, one note about if you actually do work your way from the start of the show. A, we are not the hosts of the original episodes, but B, rules have changed since then. So just make sure not to take everything as absolute law, and particularly any time they discuss policy or death, touch, and trample. Indeed. Yeah. Just be careful of that. Rules change quite often. Every three months, one might say. So, the first question the guy has is, if he has four morphed creatures, so two, four face-down creatures on the field, and his opponent casts Sever the Bloodline, which reads, exile target creature and all other creatures with the same name as that creature, does he exile only the one targeted guy, or will he exile all of the guys? Now you said these are uh, morphed creatures, face-down yeah, creatures. Face-down creatures, so all tutus, the whole deal. So this is this is something that used to come up with a card called Maelstrom Pulse, uh, and now I guess it's coming up with this card. The face-down creatures don't have a name, which is not the same as having the same name. Uh, so they're only the, only the one that was targeted will be exiled. The rest of them will stay in play. Yeah, and another example normally is... Um, uh, you know, something said destroyed target creature and all creatures that share a color with it. If you do it on an artifact creature, it has no color, so you're not going to destroy everything else. Oh, this one's interesting. I was surprised. His his next part of the question. I was surprised when Sean, uh, referring to Sean Cadenese, the former host, 
explain that you have to deal damage equal to a creature's toughness in order to trample over when the attacking guy has death touch and blah, blah, blah. So actually, this is exactly what I was talking about. Just to be clear, the death touch rules are now that if you have a creature with death touch and trample, dealing one damage is enough to be able to trample over. So if I have a 4-4 death touch and you block with a 6-6, I can assign one damage to the 6-6 and the other three to you. Anything else is old rules, and it no longer... And no longer applies. I think it's the word you looking for. Yeah. yeah. All right, he has one more question. When you use a specific tutor, like Enlightened Tutor, which uh, it searches searches up an, an artifact or enchantment card from your library, and you reveal that card, shuffle your library, and put it on top, his question is, how much of the card does my opponent get to see? If my opponent doesn't know what the revealed card actually does, is he allowed to read the card's text, or is the reveal simply done to prove that the card I search for is a legal target for the spell? So we're talking if you have to reveal something to meet a requirement, mm-hmm. right? He's saying, so, can I just flash it just so you're clear? You know, say I'm fetching up pacifism. Uh, can I just flash it to you real quick so that you can verify that it's an enchantment, or do I have to let you read it? You know, say you've never seen pacifism before mm-hmm. or rest. I mean, you you have to give them a reasonable amount of time to see what the card is. Mm. Uh, and if they want to read that card, then I, as a judge, I would say, yeah, let them read that card. Um, now, if they later on go, oh, wait, what does that do? Can you, can you show me that again? You don't have to show it to them. But even if they didn't get to see all of it, they're still going to be able to call a judge and uh, and go, judge, what, what's what's the oracle text on pacifism? And the judge is going to give it to them. So yeah. the, that information is available to them anyway. So it's not like you're missing out on anything by not being able to, to, to hide that from them, if you will. That's that's something they're going to be able to get anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Pacifism was a bad example there. But any any of those w- more wordy enchantments, uh, you know, you have to give them the chance. You can't just flash it or, you know, show it to them but cover up the text box just to prove that it's an enchantment. Well, a good example would be if you Vendillion click yourself. Uh-huh. Uh, and you reveal a non-land card. It's very clear that what you were revealing is a non-land card. They're still going to have the opportunity to see what that card is. Great. All right. Our next question comes from Lee. I really like this question. It's it's one of those things I hadn't really thought about before. Uh, it, it's it's in regards to our last episode, which was about coffee effects. He asks if uh, Alex controls an arbitrary number of mana sources and an animated ink moth nexus. So ink moth nexus is that. Um, Land that can become a 1-1 within flying and infect for one mana. Uh-huh. Nadia controls, you know, a bunch of whatever permanents and an unanimated Ink Moth Nexus. All right. So if Alex casts Evil Twin and copies his animated Ink Moth Nexus, what can he kill with the Evil Twin? So Evil Twin reads, you may, uh, you may have Evil Twin enter the battlefield as a copy of any creature on the battlefield, except it gains you, uh, blue, black, tap, destroy target creature with the same name as this creature. He also copied the flavor text, which is, you can always tell the evil one by the dagger he's sticking in you. So his question is kind of twofold. A, so what, let's, let's start from the beginning. Well, what happens when he copies the Ink Moth Nexus with his evil twin? What does he get? When he copies the Ink Moth Nexus with his evil twin, he gets a land mm-hmm. that is not animated. Uh-huh. It happens to be an Ink Moth Nexus. It is also not an artifact. Right. It doesn't, doesn't have flying or power and toughness. Right, right. Basically an unanimated land, but it has that evil twin ability of blue black tap destroy target creature with the same name as this creature mm. so there's two questions there can he destroy which of the two ink moth nexuses that already existed can he destroy or is it is it both one neither so one of them's an animated ink moth nexus the other one is an unanimated ink moth nexus 
Ben, mm-hmm. you want to take it, Ben? Uh, I'm looking up the Oracle text of the cards right now. I read them. The, the main thing is you have an Ink Moth Nexus now that has blue-black tap destroy target creature with the same name as this creature. Sure. Well, he certainly can't destroy the unanimated one because the targeting restriction is a creature. Okay. Perfect. So I would have no great issue with him destroying the animated one because it is a creature and it does have the same name. Okay. Name is part of the copyable values. Alright, so what about the fact that evil, the evil 10 copy right now is just a land, but yet the effect says destroy target creature with the same name as this creature, yet the thing that's activating it is actually a land. Does that matter? Uh, no. No, it doesn't matter. No, it doesn't matter. No. <laughs> because this creature in this case is just referring to this permanence. Yeah. A lot of creatures that come into play and copy things have this kind of wording. Phantasmal image had similar wording. Right. Uh, where, where it referred to this creature. Uh, when, when, if it became a land, that all of that still applied. Yes, absolutely. I'll read the rule, because reading rules is fun. If an ability of an object uses a phrase such as this something to identify an object where something is a characteristic, in this case, type, creature, it is referring to that particular object, even if it isn't appropriate, isn't the appropriate characteristic at the time. That's the rule. So yes, you could kill the animated one, you cannot kill the unanimated one due to the targeting restriction that it has to be a creature. Thank you, Lee. I'll tackle this next one. It's from Jed. Jed says, uh, I really enjoy your show. I think you do a great job balancing goofy fun with serious information. The Judge Cast motto. I was an inspiring judge when I found your podcast, and the information is really good, so I still try to keep up. My actual question is, do you have any specific schedule for show releases? Something like every Tuesday or every Friday. All right. So here is our schedule. We try to record. We record every other week. Then I spend the next, or someone will spend the next few days editing the show, and we send it off to MTG Cast, who are our hosts for the show. After we send it off to them, it's kind of up to them when they're going to post it. Sometimes they post it the same day. Sometimes it can take a few days. They they have a lot of shows coming in, so it's not entirely up to us uh, as to when it gets posted. But all that being said, you should see the show probably on... Every other Monday or so, but like I said, that that's actually a little bit out of our control. Uh, we do always mention that mention the new show on our Facebook page and the Twitter account when the new ones are posted, and there is an RSS feed for our show that you can get off of MTG Cast. Uh, I think right now is a good time to go ahead and plug that I have purchased the domain mtgjudgecast.com. What it does right now is it just straight up redirects to our page on MTG Cast. So that site is mtgjudgecast.com. If you want just a really quick way to get to our shows, that's an easy way to get there. Next. Yeah, so... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm so, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, that that is just our shows as well. So it will not show, like, you know, all the other ones you have to filter through. It's a great way to get to just ours. Yeah, just ours. Um, straight to ours, because sometimes MTG Cast can be a little slow. So yeah. Let's go straight to our show. All right, the next email comes from Cameron Shiflett, who is a buddy of mine, actually. We went to the pre-release together. Mm-hmm. He says he says he just started listening to the show a month ago, which is odd, being that he's known me more than a month, but whatever. He, asks, he says, I have a Popper Commander question, which I also have a Popper Commander question, because I never – what is Popper Commander? I'd never even heard of this. It's Commander with just comments. Apparently, right. but your your legend doesn't really have to be a legend. Yes, that's that's the other thing. So your general has to be an uncommon. His question is, because at first I was like, well, doesn't it have to be legendary? But his question is, if his commander is a Dryad Arbor, which is that 1-1 land forest creature, can he play that and then also another land on the same turn? Now, this is uh, the first thing, go ahead. And this is a made-up format, so sometimes you might have to have made-up rules to handle things. I, I don't think we require a made-up rule to handle this, actually. Mm-hmm. 
do we? Like, I think it's pretty clear that you can only play Dryad Arbor as a land, right? Right. Right. So I'm not. Yeah, I don't think we're making anything up there. We're just, you know, going with it, so to speak. So you're you're saying no, you cannot play Dryad Arbor and a land. Well, as short of some other effect that allows you to play multiple lands, no, you right. cannot. Yeah, so, and, and that is exactly what I'd say, but, uh, actually Brian Prillman responded to this email as well, and he brought up a good point, cause he's king of casual formats, so he knows, he looks out for these things. He's like, well, technically, there's no rule that says, there's only a rule that says you can cast a commander from your command zone, right? There's no rule that says you can play a commander from your command zone. And since Stride Arbor can only be played, it can't be cast, that's where you would need to make up the rule. Ah, which I see what you're saying. I think it's fine. I, oh, it's a pretty natural extension. Yeah, I think so, too. Stupid Dryad Arbor makes so many cards say play instead of cast. All right, our next email comes from Michael. Nobody says where they're from anymore. He mentioned that uh he's a little surprised we didn't bring up Riku of Two Reflections on our copy episode, which is probably correct. I, I didn't think about Riku at the time. Uh, Riku of the Two Reflections, or of Two Reflections, reads... Whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, you may pay blue-red. If you do, copy that spell. You may choose new targets for the copy. Whenever another non-token creature enters the battlefield under your control, you may pay green-blue. If you do, put a token that's a copy of that creature on the battlefield. So it copies things. It's the copying poster child. He's asking, say I have Riku out, and I play a clone. So I have clone on the stack. Now, Riku only triggers when a creature enters the battlefield, not when it's cast. So clone enters the battlefield and copies my opponent's Borborigmos, which all that matters is it's a legendary creature. All right? Okay. Then he wants to know, can he still pay the green-blue and get a copy of Borborigmos, right? So the two Borborigmoses are going to wipe each other out due to legendary rule. So that that's Borborigmos 1 and your clone Borborigmos. Okay. So what, so what is the progression from here? What, what happens? Where's that trigger? Where is it going? I must have missed something in this question. Yeah, it's, it's a sorry. little, it's a, it's a little, it's tough to say. Uh, well, so you cast clone and it enters the battlefield as a copy of Borborigmos, who is a legend. Yes. So of course they're both going to die. Yes. But the question is, in the meantime, or, you know, at some point along these lines, can the person pay whatever Riku's copying cost is? And yes. You do if you actually can. Will you get a copy of Borbergmus, or will you get a copy of Clone, or what will happen? Right, is what they're asking. That that is exactly the question. Thank you. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Uh, so what they're doing is they're playing, for example, a Clone copying Riku and wanting to know if they can pay the cost to get a copy. Sure, we could copy Riku too. Uh, is that, I, I, okay. Technically, yeah. you're copying Borbergmus, which is a legendary creature. Oh, yeah. They they can still still get the copy if they pay the cost because they the, the ability doesn't target the creature mm-hmm. so it's not something that'll you know uh, fizzle or be countered on resolution it just puts a copy of that creature onto the battlefield so it doesn't need to know any more information than that if the creatures are no longer in play it actually doesn't doesn't matter yeah perfect it'll, yeah it'll use last known information so you will get you you end up with a Borborigmos out of this deal right mm-hmm. one single Borborigmos uh, his other question Ben I'll throw you this one to you. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. So this is also Riku. We still have Riku out. And, oh. uh, the player casts Crows and Grip, which has split second, which means it can't be, um, if it's on the stack, players can't play spells or activate abilities that aren't mana abilities. And it just reads destroy our target artifact or enchantment. He has Riku out. Will he be able to make a copy of Crows and Grip with Riku? As it turns out, he can. Oh, interesting. Because what ends up happening is you go through all the steps of casting your Crows and Grip. 
and that causes Riku's ability to trigger, and then it goes on the stack on top of Crossing Grip. Now, when the trigger resolves, you can go ahead and pay the blue-red, and you get a copy. The key here is Riku actually just says, copy the spell. He doesn't say uh, something like, copy the spell, you may cast that copy, or something like that. Right. So if it were an issue like, you know, something like the wording on Isochron Scepter lets you quote-unquote cast the copy, yeah. it would be a different problem, because you can't cast anything with split second spells on the stack. In this case, since the copy is going directly onto the stack, we're free to go ahead and put it on the stack targeting whatever we want. Perfect. Perfect. All right, that was our last email. If you listeners out there want to send us an email, you can email us at judgecast at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash judgecast and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash judgecast. And now you can find us online at mtgjudgecast.com. MTG Judgecast. Unfortunately, judgecast.com was taken, which makes me very sad, but what are you going to do? Uh, ben, A, thank you for being on, even though you ruined my segues. Yes, yes. I was, it was, it was an honor to ruin your segue. But secondly, do you have any means that you want people to contact you? Anything like that? Anything you want to plug? Um, yeah, I have lots of stuff I want to plug. I love the knowledge pool. So if you're a judge, you know, make sure you tune into the knowledge pool. There's some, uh, neat stuff down the line with that. And then if you're not a judge and you want to be a judge, I'm one of the moderators for the judge study group, which has nice theme weeks. CJ here is very active and involved in that and posts lots of fun questions. And there are questions for judges of all levels from zero to two. So, you know, we we really look forward to getting new members and helping people learn. Of all levels from zero yeah. to two. I, I laughed at that too. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, once you hit two and, you know, you really stop studying in kind of the conventional ways, I think. Sure. Okay. For those of you who don't know, there are five levels of judge. That's what they're making fun of. I, yeah, I... I assume listeners know that, but I guess I assume a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Cat fancy, that's what you it know, is. Like, we never actually said that all the policy we talked about today only applies at competitive and professional REO. It does not apply at regular REO. I guess I, we should give that a quick mention. Absolutely, yeah. That's In Friday Night Magic, nothing we talked about applies. <laughs> yeah, or pre-releases, anything like that game day. Uh, yeah. So... Anyway, thank you again for being on, Ben. I think yeah, yeah, thanks. Show, thank you guys for having me. The show benefited greatly for all of us here at JudgeCast. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. My name is CJ Schrader. I keep it fair. I'm Jess Dunks. I keep it fun. Uh, my name is Brian Perlman. I keep it boring. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Perfect. I, I am actually disappointed that I, I kept that as profanity-free as I did for no apparent reason.